Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. It's complex enough that there is probably not going to be some easy federal solution. Can I say clusterfuck? Today, one man's crusade to find out how much voting machines cost. Yeah, you know, or I guess it would be college student unlocks the riddle to a basic question about how America votes. I'm Eugene Daniels. This is Playbook Deep Dive. Reporter Ben Wofford has been studying the way our elections work, and specifically voting technology for years. It's a secretive and mysterious world, a world that's recently been thrust into the spotlight. The astonishing and sometimes horrifying truth about how American uh, voting infrastructure functions and operates. Against the background of what is, at least on a technological register, the most secure election in American history. Just without question. We've all heard these conspiracy theories. Outrageous and, you know, basically made up and contrived conspiracies about how the election was rigged because of, you know, shadowy algorithms. Companies that sell voting machines to counties all over the country aren't doing themselves any favors when it comes to transparency to the public or to the government who buys them. These companies are not evil. They're not malicious. They're acting in a way that is precisely the incentive structure that we ourselves have created. Basic information about them is so opaque that it's added fuel to the conspiracy theory fire. Chinese bamboo and now I think it's like Italian satellites. You know, like Trump's lie that the election was stolen and the debunked Dominion voting machine conspiracy. One of the great ironies of the 2020 presidential election is that it is precisely the efforts of Trump's own Department of Homeland Security that are the reason that by a country mile, the 2020 presidential election was by far the most secure in modern history. I mean, it's not even a close call. This week, after months of buildup, Senate Republicans blocked a Democrat sweeping election reform bill. No surprises there. Folks on the Hill are talking about voting rights right now because of the 2020 election, which prompted a ton of renewed attention on the elections industry. One of the things that's in the category of attacks on American institutions that make people think that, hey, maybe Trump did us a favor here, not because his attacks on these companies was anything other than malicious, harmful, libelous, and false, but because we all could benefit from a wake-up call of understanding just what's under the hood of what makes democracy function and how voting technology is administered. I mean, you know, believe it or not, it helps to check the oil on your car every once in a while. Okay, let's check the oil on the private companies who sell most of the machines millions of Americans, including me and you, have voted on. Turns out it's not that easy. It's completely shrouded in secrecy. Lawmakers, a whole commission convened by the National Academy of Sciences, and even the White House failed to find answers. 
I mean, some people like golf. I like voting technology. A student at the University of Pennsylvania uncovered more than any of the officials ever did. So, <laughs> his name is Matt Caulfield. And so the sort of economics of voting machines have a huge effect on the future. And so how much your voting machines cost today might affect what voting machines you're using tomorrow. Ben first became aware of him at a conference in Miami. I had never heard of him. In fact, no one had. He must have been around 23 years old, who got up in a suit. Matt was presenting information on the voting industry to a bunch of much older, much more experienced attendees. And he just held the room in thrall. Experts in the field were listening. He had answers to these questions that people twice his age would often throw up their hands and say, well, we just don't know that. Matt studied Wharton's most competitive degree, economics, before graduating summa cum laude. But before graduating, he inherited a puzzle that would torment him for five years, a class project that a professor assigned, an everyday thing for a Wharton student. It was just a bunch of undergrad and MBA students uh, led by a professor. Initially, Matt's like, voting technology? Boring. I was worried it might be a little dry, and I didn't really want to end it with a class I didn't like, but I ended up liking it, of course. The question? How big precisely was the U.S. elections industry? And that led to a seemingly easier, more direct question that proved real difficult to answer. Sometimes tedious. How much does each county pay for a single voting machine? But ultimately very fruitful. He eventually graduated. The class assignment was over, but Matt kept pursuing the answer as a little research hobby. <laughs> a sort of side gig. He did things like contact 3,000 counties to get information. And we got some sort of pretty funny responses like, we bought a wooden box. Do you want our receipt for that? Or is that not what you're looking for? Some people would say, oh, I think I remember it costing X dollars. And then we had to sort of ask our question, well, we were really looking for the actual contract for the actual numbers. Can we sort of include that in their data set? So you get sort of a diversity of responses from hundreds and hundreds of people that you have to sort of start to sort through and then categorize. The research that Matt and his team did is now some of the most game-changing in the world of voting technology. Ben Wofford combed through Matt's research. It was after this conference that this kid, this uh, somewhat mysterious Caulfield's name began to be whispered sort of around uh, the small, rather incestuous network of voting technology activists. And it was then that I started calling him routinely. So, I mean, tell me, you know, I'm Joe Blow the Voter, right? What ultimately does it matter to me what voting machines cost, for example, county to county? Like, is this part of the reason why my Nana stands in line for five hours to vote. Like, what is, like, what is the drill down for me? What, it, what does it matter to, like, the normal person what these machines cost? So there's, like, a macroscopic answer, and then there's a very personal answer for Joe the voter. The macroscopic answer is that we have an incredibly obscure and not, in the views of most experts, very well-administered infrastructure of voting technology in the United States. And... It has a ton of downstream effects that start with vulnerabilities, for instance, in technology security questions that we thought about in 2016 that end at the end of the downstream effects in a related way to why 
there are some counties where people are standing for five hours in line um, at the personal level. The truth is that the reason that these companies were such an easy mark for conspiracy theories was because they're so dimly understood, not just by average Americans, but by experts, by people who have devoted years of study to try to figure out what these companies do and, and how they operate. You know, we don't even often think about this. It's so screamingly obvious, right? But uh, imagine if we were trying to regulate the car industry and the price of cars was like a closely held secret or a mystery. I mean, it's almost kind of hard to imagine, right? Because we have institutions built around, you know, consumer education, like the Kelly Blue Book, for instance, or Consumer Reports, that help us figure out what prices are, that help us figure out who has a bad reputation, who is selling where. That's like literally thing one of how markets operate efficiently. You know, in the regulatory sphere, there's a metaphor we use that I actually ran by some experts that may be more interesting, you know, than the car example, which is cars are not a public good. Roads maybe are, right? Hmm. So the, the cars metaphor works to a certain extent, but where it stops is that voting is not just like any other product, right? Voting technology is not like the market for coffee beans or light bulbs. It is a public good that we all have an investment in making sure is sacrosanct and, and has integrity, right? It's, it's above and higher than the standards that we would want applied to just regular market commodities. It's it's as important as it gets, right? Like that is it is it is the foundation of what the country is built on. A better analogy actually might be climate change. Hmm. It related to carbon emissions, right? I mean, imagine if I told you your job is to like write this big new law to regulate carbon emissions from cars, but that the price of gasoline is a closely held secret at every truck stop in America. The price could be anywhere between a dollar a gallon and $400 a gallon. Maybe you have some range. And you bring to this commission, right, that has this huge regulatory mission, you know, a guy who once, you know, pumped a car in Louisiana and said, well, I sold a gallon of gas for 250 And another guy says, you know, well, I paid 50 bucks for, you know, a gallon. And, you know, you were trying to basically scrape together some sense of what the price per gallon of gasoline is based on these like scraps of like, you know, innuendo and anecdote that are sort of like whispered and not entirely verifiable, right? That stunningly is actually not far from how we have had to think about the market for voting technology for going on 20 years and more. Basically, as long as we've been asking the question, we have never really had better than a dim understanding of what like the basic building block of efficient markets is for voting technology, and that is how much do they cost? What mm -hmm. is like the unit cost for different types of voting technology, whether it's machines, whether it's e-poll books, and whether it's the litany of sort of the gears and axles that you'll find in any election administration office across the country that makes elections run smoothly? That is the simplest question, right? And so I guess with these costs being kind of all over the place, how does that contribute to voter disenfranchisement, right? Like, even though, you know, Congress um, allots the budget, poor counties, for example, they get charged more sometimes because, you know, they're less important clients, right? They don't have as much leverage. And so how does how does the fact that these prices are all over the place, that it can cost all types of um, different wild numbers or not? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great question. Impact the actual voters in these counties. So... It's not unrelated to voter disenfranchisement in the broader scheme. So first of all, we can't be 100% certain 
we don't have like airtight numbers about you know how much more certain counties are paying than others. Caulfield has assembled the largest data set, certainly that that has ever been done. It's more than 350 jurisdictions, which is just huge, and it points to some trends that aren't airtight like scientific empirics, but they do point to some concerning signs: poorer or less well funded by taxpayers or smaller tax-based counties, often rural counties, are sometimes paying more per unit than richer metropolitan areas, which is an artifact of the winner-take-all economy that, you know, certainly many writers and economists point out how these gilded cities are reaping benefits and technology and companies in a way that often leaves sort of rural America behind. So that's sort of thing one. Thing two is if there's a connection to disenfranchisement, it's in sort of a more broad-minded sense, which is that, you know, disenfranchisement can come in the form of long lines, but it can come in the form of a broader experience with the act of voting in a civic sense, right? Everybody in the United States deserves to vote on technology that is functional, that is secure, that is well-run, and by administrators that are running that equipment competently. And if poorer counties are being charged slightly more. It means they can't buy as many machines or they can't buy them as often. It's the difference between, you know, a county being able to upgrade their machines every five years instead of every 15 years. And it also is the difference between having fewer voting machines and more voting machines. You know, Orwell said often the solutions are the ones that are hiding right in front of your nose. The number one thing we could do tomorrow to cut down long lines at the polls would be to quadruple the number of voting machines in the United States, right? I mean, that's the difference between picking up prescriptions at CVS and waiting for two hours at the DMV, right? It's just the number, you know, of clerks and the demand of people in line. Mm -hmm. If we had real competitive pressures and a basically well-functioning market, we might actually have companies competing to make a better voting machine and to sell it for cheaper, right? That's what markets do. But instead, we have this sort of tangled Rube Goldberg system. There are a lot of factors that go into explaining why this system is so backwards. But the bottom line is that these companies are not evil. They're not malicious. They're run by patriots hmm. who certainly don't go in it to make a buck. Nobody goes into voting technology to make money. <laughs> and what Caulfield revealed is that these companies have, you know, fumes for profit margins. It's not unlike the declining, clinging for life business models of local newspapers, which have been snapped up by private equity. Well, guess what? So have the voting technology companies, right? They're basically kept on life support by the private equity companies that own them. And the point here being that the people who actually work in these companies, they don't go in it to make a buck. Actually, many of them were former officials at the state level. They come into it from a love of civics. They're acting in a way that is precisely the incentive structure that we ourselves have created with this, you know, tangled, uh, oftentimes absurd system of rules and incentives that basically force a shotgun marriage between a public good of voting and American style capitalism. That sounds really depressing when you put it like that, Ben. I have to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm sure a lot, a lot of listeners are going to get really sad when they hear hear the that last first of the last sentence that you just said. Well, the good news though is that that this is the first step, right? I mean, mm -hmm. so the good news is that you know it's darkest just before the dawn. I guess to use the cliche. Oh, that's nice. 
That's a nice cliche. Right. And what Caulfield has done here is this really basic first step. It's a really extraordinary work of muckraking. He has pulled out this mysterious thing sort of out of the basement, out of the dark and into the light, right? We can now have, you know, an enlightened conversation about how our market is working once we have an understanding of what the prices are and what the individual markets are around the country, we can start to have a conversation about, well, maybe we should be doing something better. I mean, just to give you a sense, Eugene, members of Congress are not even permitted to know what is going on oftentimes in these companies that provide the voting technology that get those members of Congress elected. So when the three CEOs of the largest technology vendors came to Capitol Hill last year, a congresswoman, Susan Davis, actually asked point blank what their profits and revenues were. And all three of the CEOs declined to respond as one of them sort of politely explained, you know, we're a private company, so we'll keep that information private. So even when asked by members of Congress, right, policymakers aren't allowed to know some of the most basic information about how well our private markets are functioning, to which we've allocated and entrusted, you know, a huge amount of latitude to administer our voting infrastructure. And so what Caulfield has done is both an extraordinary work of effort to bring this really basic piece of knowledge out into the light, but he's also revealed, you know, he himself is an artifact of just how little we have really known about how this industry works, that Blue Ribbon Commissions, chaired by Lee Bollinger, the president of Columbia University, to Congress people on committees on Capitol Hill, to the White House, which issued a report uh, late in the Obama administration and more or less threw up their hands. All of these institutions have understood really so little for so long. It seems from everything you're saying that there's this like very extremely fine line between election legitimacy or false claims of fraud and the lack of transparency around voting machines in the voting industry itself. Like, does it make it harder to create a sense of trust when we can't answer straightforward questions like how much does one voting machine cost? So, um, yes, I mean, it it does it at least in one way, which is, um, you know, there is a connection, I think, to some measure between the opaqueness of voting technology companies and our sense of trust in the outcome. For Americans especially, right, we don't trust what we can't see, right? We we live in this country where, you know, allegedly transparency is, is at the top of everybody's mind all the time. And if it looks like something's being hidden, even if it's not, if it looks like something is being hidden, which is different than just not being shared, the trust isn't there and that creates an issue. It's such a great point. I mean, I think you said that so well. You know, um, there's a reason, you know, Missouri is called the show me state. You know, we right. do have a tradition in this country of, of demanding to see the facts and having some measure of transparency, not only but especially with public goods. Mm-hmm. The lack of transparency, again, you know, incentivized by the system that we have built for these companies to operate in. Right. So the companies aren't evil or doing anything you know, malfeasant or wrong, so to speak. They're private companies. They don't have to share this information. But the Hmm. consequence of companies that even members of Congress know very little about is that they were a perfect mark for someone like Trump, who is so creative in finding ways and fissures in our civic fabric to tear them wider and to operationalize distrust. These companies are incredibly small, right? Matthew Caulfield finds in his first report, that the size of 
your entire revenue footprint is something like around $350 million. That is mm-hmm. approximately the size of the entire R&D department of the camera company GoPro. That's the size <laughs> of the entire American voting technology industry. It is tiny. That's insane. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it is, especially when you think about how vulnerable they were to someone like Trump's claims, who sees this industry. They're incredibly small. They're, believe it or not, incredibly devoted to their work and preoccupied with figuring out, you know, how to make an election run smoothly in Iowa and not knowing the first thing about how to wage, much less win a Twitter war against the sitting president, right? This is a perfect Trump mark, you know, the kind that could not punch back now, you know, or so he thought until these lawsuits came around. So on the kind of the basic question, I feel like you're not going to answer this for me. How much does a voting machine cost? Well, it's all over the place, <laughs> we found out, and it doesn't uh, admit of a simple explanation. But we mm-hmm. do see clustering of prices around certain machines. So, for instance, um, there's a machine called the DS200. It's thought to be uh, maybe the most popular voting machine model um, in use in the country. It has a median price tag per unit of about $6,000, a little less than that. But mm-hmm. but the variation here is really wide. And it turns out the reason, which Caulfield discovered, is because these companies are um, doing almost anything they can to secure a contract. And to do that, they are throwing discounts at almost anybody they can find. Um, it's a beg, borrow, and steal method to get contracts in almost any way that they can. And to do that, they are, shall we say, liberally and also somewhat haphazardly throwing out discounts like candy in whatever way can get the sale. And so what this results in are some mild absurdities that are sort of out of a Joseph Heller novel. So for instance, you know, Gila, Arizona receives an Arizona customer discount, but Coconino, Arizona does not. Mm -hmm. You know, in Virginia, Arlington County and Spotsylvania County both received what their contracts call a good faith discount, but one is 20% lower than the other. I mean, these are these are counties that are being serviced by the same companies, right? So it's like a wild west. You know, there's not a lot of logic to the reason that some counties are charged more or less per unit price per item. And there doesn't appear to be any logic either about volume, right? So one of the tried and true principles of American market capitalism is that volume is associated with discount. The more you buy, right, the smaller your price is, you know, per unit of commodity. Well, that doesn't really seem to be true in the market for voting technology, right? In fact, so for instance, Polk County, Florida, you know, paid significantly more for the same machines than Dodge County, Wisconsin, even though Polk bought substantially more of them, right? I mean, they should be paying less per unit, right? But the the last thing that explains this wide variation in prices that doesn't really seem to have any kind of clear trend or iron logic is that, guess what? Matthew Caulfield discovers, and we've long suspected this, that the voting machine companies aren't making their profits from voting machines at all. It turns out that these companies are making the bulk of their profits. We, we don't know profits, but we know revenue streams don't come from the machines. You know, they come from the contracts, which often last 10 years or more of servicing the equipment. These are bespoke technologies that can't be replaced at the staples uh, or the Best Buy. They have to be mm. serviced by the companies and they will come, you know, year after year when the machines break down, if they're glitchy. They, you know, have you basically locked into a service contract that then pays out 
annually. And it turns out that this is the bulk of the revenue stream and, and how these companies are basically staying afloat. And so what we begin to understand actually is that the voting machines as a business model are themselves a bit of a mirage, right? These are actually in a, some measure voting machine customer support companies. There actually are cases, we know at least one case that Caulfield found in Oregon in which the company sold the county the machines almost for free, right? They were willing mm-hmm. basically to give the machines away because these machines have glitches, they break down, they don't run the way they should. Right, right. And, you know, they're not exactly, you know, a hotbed of hotshot computer science students from Stanford are not moving to Nebraska to design our voting machines. It sounds like like they should. Well, it's funny you say that because that could be the future. Mm-hmm. That's the future story that we uh, that we gesture towards at the end of this. I mean, if you want a ray of hope, I can give you one. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think that's so just quickly the future is looking pretty bleak, right? Like, how bleak is it? You're probably right. This is a, can I say clusterfuck? It, it's, yes. it's complex enough that there is probably not going to be some easy federal solution. But here's the good news is that in America, and this is what makes America great, or one of the things is that we have really smart, resilient people who care about this stuff mm. in this country. And this report And what we are finding out about how voting infrastructure works has inspired really smart people to start to think differently about this shotgun marriage between a public good and American-style private equity capitalism, this shotgun marriage between voting infrastructure and and private equity capitalism. And so one possible solution is actually now being trial-ballooned by a really interesting guy who was inspired by Matthew Caulfield's report. He read Caulfield's report, and he left his job at Mozilla. He left a high-paying job in Silicon Valley to start not a company, but a nonprofit. And this is a completely different way of thinking about how we might minister voting infrastructure in the United States, not for-profit companies, but nonprofits that can build machines with off-the-shelf technology. So this company is called Voting Works. Its machines are sold at a third of the cost, right? So they're easier on the taxpayers, easier for counties to afford. And guess what? They're not bespoke technology built in a secret warehouse somewhere in Nebraska. They're used with a Microsoft tablet and an HP printer. Now, here's the twist. This is not a problem that admits of easy solutions, you know, for liberals or conservatives, right? There are Democrats who, you know, want to apply sort of typical liberal frameworks, and there are sort of conservatives that want to apply the Chicago school solutions. Well, voting is so complex that neither of those really work, right? And it turns out that one of the sort of ways that this is complex is that the problem isn't that we have too little regulation. The problem is that there's just way too much regulation, and it's fractalized. So every state has different rules for the type of technology that you can allow. Well, guess what? One of the states, the only state in the United States that don't have these bulky regulations where you could actually experiment and try something new is the poorest state in the country, and that's Mississippi. It's also the state with some of the worst experiences for voters. It's a state that has been historically a hotbed of voter disenfranchisement. But it turns out that in the DNA of this very conservative state is a resistance to regulations that allows uh, someone from Mozilla to quit their job, start a nonprofit, and set up shop. 
up. So this really exciting experiment in what could be the future of how we uh, administer voting infrastructure is actually taking place right now in Mississippi. And they've just had their first election, I think, in three counties uh, in 2020 using this new technology that was built from Microsoft tablets, HP printers, and sold at a third of the cost. You know, it's darkest just before the dawn. And the first step towards having a thoughtful and productive conversation about building a different kind of system starts with, you know, getting the basic facts out in the open. So um, we're not in Act 3. We're not even in Act 2. We could be in Act 1 of um, a really interesting and new kind of discussion about how we want um, elections to operate uh, in the United States. Ben, thank you so, so much. This was so helpful. This was a great conversation. I could do this all day with you. <laughs> yeah, thanks, all Eugene. Day. I had a hell of a good time. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Speaking of Act One, remember Matt Caulfield? Today, he's 26. Just finished his PhD at Wharton. He's starting as an assistant professor in management at Westchester University in the fall. And yes, he's still searching for answers about our election industry. My friends kind of find it funny that I work on this. You know, when you tell someone, like, well, what are you, what are you doing tonight? It was like, oh, well, I'm talking to Politico about voting technology industry. And they're like, what? It's, and then they just laugh, right? It seems sort of like absurdly niche. But don't worry, Matt has other hobbies too. I've been interested in classical singing and opera for most of my life. Um, I'm a baritone, if that is relevant. Uh, <laughs> I actually recently, though, was writing a piece about Gilbert and Sullivan's comic opera and its implications for corporate law. So they wrote this operetta called Utopia Limited that sort of parodied limited liability in corporate law. So that there, I tried to sort of combine some of my research interests with my, my hobbies. And that's our show. Our producers are Adrian Hurst and Annie Rees. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. We'll take you behind the scenes of what makes Capitol Hill tick again next week on another Playbook Deep Dive. Just the two Special thanks to Ben Wofford, who, in addition to his other talents, wrote me a little ditty. Alright, thanks for listening, and see you next week. Thanks, bro.